Well, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Are y'all able to hear me okay? Yes. Okay, good. All right. So today, this morning, we're going to continue our our journey through Genesis. Um, how many of you went ahead and read Genesis 29? I did. See a few hands. That's okay for those of you who didn't, because we're going to do it again anyway. This is a real fun chapter that Gabe decided to give me. Is it long? Is it long? <laughs> Gabe will determine that. Okay. All right. So we're going to go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29. It says, Then Jacob lifted up his feet and went to the land of the peoples of the east. When he looked, suddenly there was a well in the field, and there were three herds of sheep resting by it. For from that well they would water the flocks. The stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all of the herds gathered there, they would roll away the stone from the mouth of the well and water the flocks, and put the stone back to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they said. So he said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's son? They said, We know. He said to them, Is he well? Well, they said, Look, here comes his daughter Rachel with a flock. He said, Since it's still the middle of the day, it's not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the flock and let them go and graze. But they said, We can't. Not until all the flocks are gathered and the stone is rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we water the flock. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with the flock that belonged to her father, for she was a shepherdess. Now when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob stepped forward and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. Then, Rachel, then Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. We'll stop right there for right now. So, so far, this story is kind of similar in nature to that of Abraham sending his servant back to his relatives to find a wife for Isaac, right? Except this time, Jacob is by himself. So there's a few differences. Jacob is by himself with just a shirt on his back. And he also doesn't come bearing gifts and, and things like Abraham's servant did when he went back to, to find a spouse for Isaac. But nevertheless, Jacob has returned to his roots to find a wife. And his search seems to pay off when Rachel comes to the well. It says he kissed her and lifted up his voice and wept. So this is Jacob basically saying, here she is. This woman is going to be my wife. My search is over. Praise God, right? I won't ask how many of you did that when you met your wife. So let's keep reading. Now when Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him, hugged and kissed him, and brought him to his house. Then he told Laban all these things. Laban said to him, Surely you are my own bone and flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. 
Then Laban said to Jacob, Should you, my relative, serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob was in love with Rachel. So he said, Let me serve you for seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than I give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob worked for Rachel seven years. Yet in his eyes, it was like only a few days because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are completed, so I may go to her. So Laban gathered all the men of the place, and he prepared a feast. When it was evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him, and he went to her. Laban also gave her Zilpah, his female servant, to his daughter Leah as a female servant. So when it was morning, behold, there she was, Leah. So he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked with you? So why have you deceived me? Hmm. But Laban said, It's not done so in our place to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the bridal week for this one, then we'll also give you this other for work that you'll do with me another seven years more. So Jacob did. He also completed this one's bridal week. Then he gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban also gave his daughter Rachel, his female servant Bilhah, to be a servant for her. Jacob also went to Rachel and indeed loved Rachel more than Leah. So he served with him yet another seven years. All right. So so we see that Laban at some point realizes Jacob's going to be around a while. And he asks him point blank, Should you, my relative, serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? I'm willing to bet that by this time Laban has caught on that Jacob has got an eye out for Rachel. So Jacob offers to work for seven years in exchange for Rachel. Now I think it's worth mentioning that it was not customary for a father to sell his daughter to a man in exchange for service. And later on, in Genesis chapter 31, we're going to see where both Rachel and Leah felt shamed for having been sold for a price. But moving on, Jacob works for seven years. And once those seven years were up, he went to go collect his payment. He wanted his wife. He wanted Rachel. And Laban throws a big party, and long story short, Jacob wakes up with the wrong woman in his bed. Must have been a heck of a party. No comment, Bob. I can't help but wonder if Jacob had a moment where he said, hmm, so this is what it feels like to be on the receiving end of deception. On the receiving end of deceit and betrayal. This is what it feels like. Perhaps Jacob remembered that time he dressed up like Esau and deceived his father Isaac. Who knows? But regardless, Jacob has all been out of shape. And Laban says, complete the seven-day wedding ceremony for Leah 
And then after you have completed that, you can marry Rachel in exchange for another seven years. So Laban's played his cards pretty well, right? He's tricked Jacob, and now he's going to get 14 years of work out of this man. And Jacob finds himself in a position where he's trying to not just please one, but two wives. Let's keep reading. We're going to pick up in verse 31. Now Adonai saw that Leah was unloved, so he opened her womb, but Rachel was unable to conceive. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son and named him Reuben because she said, For Adonai has seen my affliction. Surely now my husband will love me. Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to a son and said, For Adonai heard that I am hated, so he's given me this one also. And she named him Simeon. Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to a son and and said, Now this time my husband will join himself to me because I've given birth to three sons for him. For this reason he was named Levi. Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to a son and said, This time I praise Adonai. For this reason she named him Judah. And then she stopped having children. So that's the conclusion of chapter 29. So we begin to see this rivalry develop between Rachel and Leah, right? And this rivalry is one of many examples that we can refer to throughout Scripture that really highlights just how bad of an idea that polygamy is. Jacob had two wives, but he clearly had a favorite, didn't he? And it wasn't, that fact was not lost on Leah. She knew that she was the least preferred wife. And uh, I have no doubt that she was hurt. I mean, we heard it right here in the, you know, finally, uh, maybe, my, maybe my husband will love me now that I've given him a son, but it didn't matter what she did for Jacob. Jacob still preferred Rachel. So, why am I going to be talking about polygamy this morning? Simply because I think it's something we may face in this country sooner or later. In 2015, President Barack Obama and the Supreme Court said that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution requires states to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Ever since that has happened, other groups have been campaigning for polygamy and polyamorous relationships to also be included in the Equal Protection Act. So this is an issue that very well may be on our doorstep in the coming years. Polygamy is something that, I'll see, whenever prominently dealt with in Scripture has always spelled trouble, right? Clearly, polygamy, at least among wealthy and powerful men in the Bible, was common and brought little condemnation from God or His prophets, right? But the silence of God does not necessarily mean approval. 
Just because something is mentioned in the Bible does not mean that it is approved. For example, God permitted divorce because of the hard hearts of the people. That's from Matthew 19, verse 8. But to permit reluctantly is not to endorse it or to be pleased with it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Everywhere you look in Scripture where men have multiple wives, it did not turn out very well. And we're going to look at some of the examples of that this morning. And I just want to say this real quick. I do not believe that there is any place for polygamy in the Western world. Nor do I believe that there is any place for polygamy in the life of a believer and follower of Yeshua. And, but, you see, with the men we read about in Scripture who had multiple wives and concubines, they had the resources and the finances to take care of every last one of them and the children that were produced by those relationships. What we see in the world today are men who will have sex with multiple women and then take no responsibility for the women and or the children that is produced by those encounters. That is sexual immorality. In Exodus chapter 22, it says that if a man seduces a virgin and lies with her, he is to pay the bride price for her and make her his wife. Think about that for a minute. God doesn't permit you to just run around and sleep with whoever. So young men, unless you're planning on putting a ring on that finger, don't even think about it. I can assure you, if men today had to pay a bride price or had, or had to marry every woman that he freely slept with, there would be a lot less of that crap going on. I promise you that. Sorry, I got a little off topic. So I do not condone or or endorse polygamy. I actually don't even like to hear about it. Instead of concerning ourselves with whether polygamy is a sin or not, which seems to be the big thing, perhaps we should look at the fruit of polygamy compared to what the Bible defines a marriage to be. We live in a time where a lot of men are deadbeats and can't even handle taking care of one. Or the children that came along with it. There's no accountability at all. But 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 says this, Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If unbelievers aren't going to make it into the kingdom, what could be worse than that? I don't know. But God's plan for marriage is set forth poetically but clearly. One man and one woman in a stable, lasting, fruitful relationship of mutual support. God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a suitable helpmate for him. Genesis 2, verse 18. Note that the word is helpmate, not helpmates. Note that in presenting a suitable partner, a suitable helpmate for Adam, God created a woman and not a man. Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? He also created one woman for Adam. Not two, not three, not four. 
So we see that both homosexual marriage and polygamy are excluded from the get-go. Scripture goes on to insist that a marriage is a lasting union, for it says that a man shall cling, and the Hebrew word there is dabak, I may be butchering that, to his wife, not wives. And the two, not three, not four, of them shall become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24. God then went on to tell them to be fruitful and to multiply. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. So, in Matthew's Gospel, Yeshua signals a return to God's original plan. And he says this, and if y'all wanted to turn there, you can. It's Matthew chapter 19, 4 through 6. If you want to turn there, I'll give you a second. But we'll see what our king has to say about it. Matthew 19, verse 4 through 6. It says, Have you not read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, singular, and the two will become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Let's look at some polygamous relationships in the Bible and see how they turned out, shall we? We'll start with Gideon. Gideon had many wives. And by them, he had many sons. Seventy, to be exact. The sons competed for kingship, power, and inheritance. They had little love for one another because they all had different mothers. Abimelech, one of Gideon's sons, was not loyal to his half-brothers, due to his, but, but to his mother and her clan. That's who he was loyal to. He didn't, and he did not hesitate to slaughter his own brothers to gain power. Go on to King David. King David had eight wives and ten concubines. And before, you know, also God laid out rules and provisions for the kings of, of Israel and told them not to collect wives and not to have multiple wives. So they didn't listen. So King David had at least eight wives and ten concubines. Trouble erupts in this blended, to put it mildly, family when Absalom, David's third son, whose mother was Maacah, sought to move to the head of the line of secession. When his older brother, Kaleb, died, only his half-brother, Amnon, stood in the way. The tension between these royal sons of different mothers grew intense when Amnon raped Absalom's sister, Tamar. And Absalom later had Amnon murdered for it. And then he would later mount a rebellion to try to overthrow his father. Now King Solomon... King Solomon, it is said, was to have 700 wives. Good Lord. 
and 300 concubines. The tolerance of pagan religious practices encouraged by these wives, along with other policies, led to great hostility and division in the kingdom of Israel. After Solomon's death, the northern kingdom of Israel seceded from Judah. They were never reunited, and both kingdoms were eventually destroyed by surrounding nations. Lurking in the mix of this mess is polygamy. Abraham's sexual relations with his wife Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, also led to serious trouble. Serious trouble that is still being dealt with in the Middle East today. Although Hagar became pregnant with Ishmael at Sarah's behest, Sarah grew jealous and mistreated her, causing her to flee. Jealousy, right? Same thing with Leah and Rachel. So Sarah grew jealous and mistreated her, causing her to flee. Hagar eventually returned and gave birth to Ishmael. Later, when Sarah finally bore a child of her own, Isaac, she decided that Ishmael was a threat to him and had Abraham drive him and Hagar away. Yes, that's Genesis 21. And finally, in closing, we circle back to Jacob. He has two wives. And he didn't even want the first one. Didn't want Leah. But he ends up having 12 sons by four different mothers. All these sons by different mothers created tension, the greatest of which surrounded Joseph, whose brothers grew jealous and began to hate him because he was Jacob's favorite. And who was Joseph's mother? Rachel. The brothers hatched a plot to kill Joseph. But due to a combination of their desire for monetary gain and the intervention of the older brother Reuben, he was instead sold into slavery. And at the root of this sad story is polygamy. polygamy. So does the Bible teach on polygamy? Yes. Through stories we learn of its problematic nature. We ought not to be overly simplistic and conclude that polygamy was the only problem or that such tragedies never occur in other settings, but it clearly played a pretty strong role. I, unlike Marvin, have yet to fully understand women. But in four short years of marriage, one thing I have realized is that women do not want to feel like they have to compete for your time and attention. It is a husband's job to love his wife as Christ loved the church. It's a husband's job to make his wife feel loved, safe, and secure. And a polygamous marriage is not going to achieve that. We can read that it doesn't. I'll end with this verse from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. That says this. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. That doesn't mean multiple wives. <laughs> 
Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so that your prayers will not be hindered. Let's pray. My Father and King, thank You for giving us instructions in Your Word about marriage and how to treat our wives. And I mean that in the singular. (laughs) Help us as husbands in this congregation to honor our wives and love them, cherish them, and respect them. Help us to show our sons by our actions how to treat their future spouse. Help us to demonstrate to our daughters what they should expect and look for in a spouse. And that is a man that treats her with honor and respect. A man that will help her feel safe and secure. A man that will love her like you love the Ecclesia. In Yeshua's name, amen. Amen. All right.